Well, you heard it already, Psalm 40. For those of you who've been studying the Bible for any length of time at all, there are some of these psalms that we've looked at that they need a substantial and significant introduction, but Psalm 40 is really not one of those. Almost everyone has heard the famous words of David when he said, He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Probably one of the most uh, often quoted and often referenced passages in the Psalms. But I want to situate the psalm in its context. You remember going back to Psalm 38. Psalm 38, David says that there was something he allowed in his life. There was some sort of sin that made him very sick. And there was no end in sight to that sickness in the 38th Psalm. It was a uh, seemingly unending illness. And then in Psalm 39, David meditates and muses on the brevity and vanity of life. And you remember when we studied last week, we discussed one of the things that will make you think and make you meditate on exactly just how short life really is, is a major illness, a major sickness, a disease that seems like it has no end in sight. Very often it's in the midst of disease and illness that people come to know the Lord. They come to start asking these questions very piercing questions. They become very concerned and aware of their eternal welfare. And uh, they become aware of just how quick life, the candle of their life, can be snuffed out. And uh, in that, we come to also question, what's the point of it all? Why are we here? And in the seventh verse of Psalm 38, David essentially asked that question, Lord, why do you want anything to do with me? My life is so short. It's like a breath. It's like a vapor. It appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And so I have it in my notes this way. In Psalm 40, based upon Psalm 38 and 39, you have the psalmist David now giving thanksgiving to God on account of God delivering and saving him from that pit of destruction in Psalm 38 and out of that miry bog in Psalm 39. Listen closely. Sinfulness and sickness cause us to consider life's brevity and vanity. Then we call out to God in the midst of our despair. God is gracious to reveal that the true meaning of our life is found in fellowship with our Creator. Thus we begin to live out the original purpose for which we were created, namely to glorify God and enjoy Him forever with thanksgiving praises. The, uh, 30 or the 40th Psalm begins on a very high note. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of praise. But it also opens up several questions. And the theme or the occasion of the sermon this morning comes to us in the form of a question. And I have it expressed this way in my notes. 
if the greatest kings and saints who have ever lived found themselves bogged down by muddy times, then how much more will you and I find ourselves the same? I'll say that again. If the greatest kings and saints who ever lived find themselves bogged down by muddy times, then how much more will you and I find ourselves in the same predicament? Let us learn what it means to cry out to God from the slimy pit of life. No one ever wants to go down into the slimy pits, but when, not if, you do, and we will find ourselves there, Psalm 40 gives words to that experience. I have several points for us to consider this morning. Roman numeral number one, verses one through three, are the testimony of joyful patience. The testimony of joyful patience. Roman number two, Roman numeral, excuse me, number two, in verses four through 11, we have the new song of thanksgiving. The new song of thanksgiving in verses 4 through 11 of Psalm 40. And in point number 3 is the renewed prayer in verses 12 through 17. So number 1, the testimony of joyful patience, verses 1 through 3. Number 2, the new song of thanksgiving in verses 4 through 11. And number 3, the renewed prayer in verses 12 through 17. David has a patient testimony. Notice what he said in verse, four, uh, verse 1 of Psalm 40. He said, I waited patiently for the Lord. I waited patiently for the Lord. We have several very uh, popular sayings in our culture. One of them is, good things come to those who wait. Whenever I was growing up, my folks, they always used to tell me, they'd say, son, patience is a virtue. You've heard these things before. And there's nothing wrong with those sayings in and of themselves. But David has something a little bit more specific in mind. See, one of the reasons why we don't experience God lifting us out of the slimy pit more is because we're not patiently waiting on the Lord to do so. We exercise and we try everything in the playbook to lift our own selves out of the pit. And there's a reason why he says specifically that the pit is slimy and it's muddy. This is the idea that it's a slippery kind of pit. This is a pit of destruction. It has the idea actually of uh, the abode of the dead in the Hebrew language. This is a very dark place. This is the idea, perhaps, of hell and Sheol, the lake of fire, as they would call it in the New Testament. I believe that they're all synonyms with one another. One of the reasons why we're not experiencing God lifting us up out of our slimy pits more often is because we're not willing to patiently wait on God to do so. See, this is such a dark and despairing place. This is such a slippery slope. It's such an encumbered place that you can't lift yourself out of this place. This is something that only God can do for you. 
We find ourselves bogged down in the muddy pit oftentimes. And when you find yourself down there in that very dark place, the most difficult thing to do is wait. You say, I can't wait, Lord, I'm sinking. I can't wait, Lord, it's nasty and dirty and awful down here. No one ever wants to have to go down into the pit, but you will if you're a Christian. You most certainly will. It's not if you will, it's when you do. And I always like to think of it this way. If you're not in the pit right now, you're uh, being lifted out of it, or you're falling down into it, and there is this sort of uh, reciprocal uh, thing that happens in our lives, you know. This is a very dark and despairing place. But we need to be able to wait patiently on God while we're down there. Because it's down in the pit, in the slime, and in the muck, and the mire of this world. That's where God finds us. See, we think we need to try to clean ourselves up and lift ourselves up out of the pit before God will have anything to do with us. And it's actually the exact opposite that's true. It's a patient testimony, but look at it. It's also a God-centered testimony. This thanksgiving that God, that David gives to God, it's God-centered. I want you to notice these key phrases in verses 1 through 3. He said, I waited patiently for the Lord. Look, he inclined to me and heard my cry. He did it. Verse 2, he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock. He put a new song in my mouth. These aren't things that you do. These are things that God does. This is very important. Because salvation and deliverance is not about what we can do for the Lord. Salvation and deliverance is what the Lord does for us. There's a big difference between what you can do for the Lord and what the Lord does for you. Be very careful with these hymns that say something like, are you doing your best for the master? In the book of Isaiah, it says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before God. God is not interested in our good effort. God is interested in his son Christ and the gospel being real to us. It's a God-centered testimony. When you give your testimony, are you God-centered? Is it what you did? Did you make a decision? Did you come down to the altar? Did you pray a prayer? Or is it all about what the Lord has done for you? This is what it means to be God-centered in our testimony giving. Listen, your testimony is actually His testimony. If it wasn't for him, you wouldn't have one anyway. David didn't say it was my decision that lifted me out of the pit. David said, I waited patiently for God to do so. Number next, it's a miraculous deliverance. It's a patient testimony. It's a God-centered testimony. But it's a miraculous deliverance. I want to show you a very, very powerful passage of Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 38 
Jeremiah 38. We'll begin reading in the second, actually the second verse. This is Jeremiah speaking. Just before that, it said, After the men heard the words of Jeremiah, what he was saying to all the people in verse 2, Thus says the Lord, He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence, but he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. He shall have, he shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord, This city shall surely be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. Then the officials said to the king, Let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in this city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of his people, but their harm. Verse number 5, King Zedekiah said, Behold, he is in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes, and there was no water in the cistern, only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. Verse 7, but when Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, the eunuch, who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate. Ebed-Melech went and from the king's house and said to the king, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern, and he will die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in the city. And the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, Take thirty men with you from here, and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went to the house of the king, to a wardrobe in his storehouse, and took from there old rags and worn-out clothes, which he then let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes." Then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. And Jeremiah did so. Then they drew Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. Jeremiah found himself in a muddy pit, didn't he? And the muddy pit that Jeremiah found himself in was actually a literal one. These men wanted him dead. They wanted him dead for Jeremiah's preaching of the Word of God. Now this is a very unusual instance because usually you and I don't find ourselves cast down into a literal pit like Jeremiah or like Joseph. And we're not really given a historical setting as to exactly when this miry pit and muddy clay and all this bogged down mud and this dark place. We're not really given a historical setting in the life of King David for when this happened. But what this does is it lends itself to some metaphors. Let me tell you what I mean. What is your slimy pit right now? Where is your dark place? The muddy place. <clears throat> the place that has you bogged down. The place that's dark and despairing. Where is that place? What is that place for you right now? Perhaps you find yourself caught in the slimy pit of sin. 
And there seems like there's no way out. David had several instances in his own life whereby he found himself down in the pit because of his sins. Very often, one of the reasons why we find ourselves in the pits, you say, how was it at work today, brother? It was the pits. <laughs> it's real encouraging. How, how, was the, how was the meeting? It was the pits. And that's where David was. He was down in the pits. We don't know exactly what it was, but we know that there was some things in David's life, there was some sins that he allowed in his life, which caused him to go down into very dark and slippery and slimy places. When you find yourself sinking down into the pit of your own sins, this dirty and nasty place, and you think that it's too awful for God to rescue you from there, cry out to Christ. Because it's in the pit of our sins where Jesus finds every one of his people. There was never one person that Jesus did not find down in the pit of their sins. That's where we all who are born again have been brought out from. The pit of sin. It's a slimy pit. It's a miry pit. It's a dark, nasty kind of place. And again, we think it's too awful for Christ to reach us and to rescue us from there. But that's actually not true at all. Secondly, <clears throat> it's a slimy pit of defeat. Maybe you find yourself this morning in a slimy pit of defeat. Maybe you have been, maybe you have fallen down into a slimy, dark, dank, muddy, awful pit. And you have had defeated relationships. Maybe it's a family relationship. Maybe it's some kind of other. Maybe it's a work relationship. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's another kind of relationship that has caused you to fall down into a muddy, miry, awful, dark pit. And you feel like there's no hope in sight. Maybe it's a defeat a slimy pit of defeat in a business venture. Maybe things at work are a slimy pit. You're in the pits at work. Maybe it's school. Maybe your homework is the pits. Somebody say amen. You find yourself in that place and it's difficult to recover from, from some of these slimy defeats. You also meet slimy people down in the pits, don't you? Be very careful, folks, because there are other people down in the pits, but the difference between those who know the Lord and those who don't know the Lord is one is calling upon God for deliverance and the other is not. Sometimes the slimy pits of defeat can make us feel as if there's no hope of recovery. But here's the good news. If you live your life for God and you call upon God and you surrender your heart to God, even if you can't surrender your heart to God. I always like when we sing these hymns, I surrender all to follow up with. I can't do that because <laughs> I can't. No matter how hard I try, no matter what I do, I don't have the strength, I don't have the power, I don't have the resources to surrender all. But Christ did surrender all for me. 
So you can sing, I surrender all, but you just have to add the little in Christ. I surrender all in Christ, because that's the only way that you can do it is in Christ. When you find yourself in the slimy pits of defeat, relational relationships defeated, work defeated, money defeated, cry out to God in the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of the pit, and he will lift you up, but you have to wait patiently on him. That's what disqualifies so many people from actually experiencing being lifted out of the pit. They're not willing to wait for God. Maybe it's a slimy pit of bad habits. Boy, here you go, this one. Lots of bad habits cause us. We put ourselves down there. If it's not our sin, it's a bad habit that puts you down in the bottom of the pit. Perhaps it's the slimy pit of a bad habit of anger. A slimy pit of the bad habit of laziness or of overworking. Of overeating, of undereating. Bad habits of not eating the right kind of food and eating too much of the wrong kind of food can put you down in the pits. Nothing can affect our overall emotional and mental health and well-being more than what we eat. If you're feeling depressed and you're feeling down and you're in the pits, my question for you is, what are you eating down there? That old phrase, you are what you eat, because that's true, isn't it? Diet and nutrition, proper diet and nutrition can fix a multitude of sins in the body and in the mind. When we find ourselves in the slimy pit of bad habits, just know that those bad habits can be broken by the power of God and replaced with new and healthy habits. God wants to develop his image in you, and he wants to make you more like Christ. Jesus also found himself in a sepulcher pit, but he resurrected himself three days later. When you find yourself sliding down in the slimy pits of bad habits, cry out to God. Maybe it's the slimy pit of circumstances. Circumstances that are beyond your control. Circumstances and situations maybe that you had, you didn't even do anything to deserve them. I want to read this passage for you. I actually go there very quickly. It's 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians 11, <clears throat> verses 24 through 28. Let's read the testimony of Paul. We'll, we'll back up to verse 23. <clears throat> Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardships, 
through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul found himself very often sliding down in the slimy pit of circumstances that were beyond his control. It's one thing for you to be in the bottom of the pit and encumbered with slime and mud and filth because of something that you have done, a bad habit perhaps, a sin that you've committed. You deserve to be down there then. But what if you find yourself down inside the pit for doing the right thing, not the wrong thing? That's the worst pit of them all. To suffer for doing good is the greatest test of our faith. Paul suffered everything that he suffered in that passage we just read because he was doing what God called him to do. That is a slimy pit indeed. You may find yourself in the muddy pit because of your witness for Christ. And when you find yourself there, cry out to him. Now, I want to show you something very fascinating and wonderful all at once in these next set of verses. Verses 4 through 11. I want you to look at verse 3. He said, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. You say, Well, I wonder what are the lyrics to this new song? Well, he's going to tell you. And verse 4 marks a new stanza. And verse 4 is the lyrics to the new song which God put into the heart of David. Let's look at it. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. The lyrics of this new song in verses 4 and 5 encourage others to trust in the Lord as you have. One of the greatest blessings of God putting a new song in your heart is that the new song is a witness kind of psalm and song. This new song is designed by God to touch others. I don't know why God has deigned and ordained for our witness and for what God does in our lives to actually draw other people to Him. I don't understand why God does that. If I were God, I wouldn't have made me His witness to draw others to Him. I would have sent an angel or I would have sent some sort of special messenger or prophet. I wouldn't have chosen me to be a testimony of the goodness and the grace of God, but God does do that. And that's what these verses are saying. The lyrics to this new song are designed to draw people to God. To draw people to God. Number B, the lyrics of the new song arise from a brand new heart. Verses 6 through 8, let's look at it. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. This new song comes from a new heart. Because God has given us a new covenant. 
Let's look at Jeremiah. You can just listen to me quote it. Then turn to your Bibles while I'm quoting this passage to the 36th chapter of Ezekiel. Me turning all over. You didn't know you was going to be looking at so many passages this morning, did you? That's good for you. Uh, while you're turning to Ezekiel, I want to read this passage to you. It's Jeremiah 31 and verse 33. Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 6, David says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. What does God want? God wants a changed life. God does not like ritualistic external shows that we put on. God is not impressed with mere church attendance and the hearing of sermons. God wants us to live for him daily. When nobody else is around, what do you think about? What do you do? And that's how we're measured, isn't it? You're measured not by what you think about in church. It's easy to think about God in church. You're measured by what you think about when nobody else is looking, when nobody else sees or hears. Are you in fellowship with God? Monday morning, pastor, <laughs> are you in fellowship with God? Church members, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning at work, on the job, are you seeking to fellowship with the Lord? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? God is not interested in our dead sacrifices and our empty offerings. God wants a life that is devoted to Him. Ezekiel 36, I tell you, this is probably one of my favorite Old Testament passages. Wow. What a wonderful, wonderful piece of scripture. Ezekiel 36. Begin reading in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before your eyes. Verse 24, look at this. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart mm. and a new spirit and I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Isn't that wonderful? How do you do what God's called you to do? God. How do you live for God? God. How do you walk with God? God. He does it all. 
And what God is calling us to do is actually believe him. You say, well, where's the works? The work is the work of faith. Do you really believe this morning that God has put his spirit in you? And that God has given you a new heart? And like David says, a new song. And that God has made a new covenant and the new covenant, God has taken us out of it. We can't mess up the new covenant. The old covenant, they messed up. Why? Because they thought they could do it. Do you remember Exodus chapter 19? Moses comes down off the mountain. And he said, this is the law. And the people said to Moses, all that is written in the book of the law, we will do and obey. And Moses doesn't even listen to him. He just sprinkles it with the blood. <laughs> How are you going to obey the law of God? The blood. What's the answer? The blood. The answer is God, the Lord. He's the one who does the work in salvation. God is the one who empowers us to live. He has put a new song. He has put a new heart. He has given me a new spirit, which is his spirit. And this is the key to the life in Christ. God is the key. God himself is the answer. The lyrics of this new song testify to God's faithfulness. And in this, you know, in the lyrics of this great song that you have, this new song in Psalm 40, you have sort of a standard for all Christian music, don't you? If it doesn't look like Psalm 40... It's probably not good music. I'm the kind of guy that I don't like my Christian music to sound like worldly music. I would just rather listen to worldly music. <laughs> is that wrong? No, it's better anyway. Worldly music is better. Don't try to knock off Christian songs by making them sound like the world. Are the songs God-centered? Are they redemptive? Is, it all, is the song all about what God has done for you? Be very careful with this music that says Jesus is my boyfriend. Yeah, these, a lot of these praise and worship songs are, you know, very empty. Our Christian music should be redemptive. It should be Christ-centered. It should speak about what God has done like David does. He put a new song. He put a new heart. He put a new spirit. God did it. And it also testifies to God's faithfulness. Now I want to show you something, and this is the conclusion. Don't get too happy. So something happens in Psalm 40 that is very unusual. And most of the Psalms are structured a certain kind of way. So uh, have you seen in most of our studies of the Psalms where you have a petition. So the psalmist asks God to do something and God hears the psalmist. God usually does what the psalmist asks and then the psalmist breaks forth into praise. So you have petition, then you have praise. And this pattern sort of makes us think that life is always like that. Life always begins with a petition and then we ultimately end up in a praise. We ask God to do something, God does it, and then we praise God. But something very peculiar happens in the 40th Psalm. 
Those orders are reversed. Psalm 40 begins with a praise and ends with a petition. This is very unusual. This is a very unique kind of structure. So let me tell you what I know this to be saying. Sometimes in the Christian life, you will find yourself one day on the rock praising God. But then the next day, you'll find yourself in the pit. You can go just as much from praise to petition as you can go from petition to praise. Now, our normal experience, it would seem, is that we are, through our pious efforts, climbing Jacob's ladder to new levels of holiness. But that's not always the case. Sometimes you take four steps forward and three steps back. Sometimes you take three steps forward and three steps back. Sometimes you take five steps forward and six steps back. But generally, the trajectory of our life is forward motion into the will of God. Psalm 40 says something different than that. Psalm 40 says that it's just as much the experience of the life of faith to take two steps forward and one step back, or three steps forward and four steps back, as it is to continue to climb. Don't forget that. Because what we want is a continued upward motion. And generally, as the Psalms testify, that's true. We bring our petition to God, we cry out to God, God answers and we praise Him. But sometimes we praise God, and then in the very next breath we find ourselves broken asking God to do something. Let me show you what I mean. Psalm 40 and verse 1. Look at what he says. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. But notice the last verse. As for me, I am poor and needy. <laughs> but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. This is a reversed kind of trajectory in the Psalms. It stands us on our head. It begins in a praise and ends in a petition. It begins in a high note and ends in the valley. It's almost like David's being lifted up out of the pit in the beginning of Psalm 40, only to see himself being fallen back down into it at the end of it. And don't get discouraged if that's been your lot in life. Don't think that that's not normal because it very often is normal. This psalm closes with a reminder that even this reversed order, praise to petition, is part and parcel of the experience of the life of faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the praise and petition. And we thank you for petition and for praise. 
We thank you, Lord, that you lift us out of the miry pit, the slimy pit. And we thank you also, Lord, that when we fall down in there, you're there for us. It's almost like we fall down into the pit and there you are. <laughs> Waiting for us. Because you knew that's what was going to happen. And you have a plan in all that. Lord, I pray that we would come to know the God who meets us at the bottom of the well. That we would come to know the God that doesn't demand that we clean ourselves up, dust ourselves off first. But that we come to know the God that meets us where we are and He cleanses us like Ezekiel says. It's you, Lord, who has done it and who is doing it. And sacrifice and offering does not. This empty sort of going through the motions, that's not what pleases you, Lord. It's a life of praise, a life of thanksgiving, a life of devotion, a life of prayer, a life of study, a life of serving others. Lord, help us to that end. In Jesus' precious name, amen.